Welcome to the Valley View Friends Church Podcast. I'm Pastor Josh. Thank you for listening in. Thanks for inviting me in to share a little bit of God's Word with you today. At Valley View Friends Church, we like to say this, that we are learning how to live as God's people, and we do this by reaching and restoring hearts and homes with Jesus. Well, I want to jump right into the message today that starts with a story. Uh, The Soviet leader Nikita Khrushchev used to tell of a time when there was a wave of petty theft rolling through the Soviet Union. And to to curtail this, the authorities put guards around all the factories. At um, one of the timber works in Leningrad, there was a guard there, and he knew the workers of the factory very well. He was friends with them. He grew up in the town. He he just knew them. And one evening out came uh, Pyotr uh, Petrovich, uh, and he had in his hands, he was pushing a wheelbarrow, and and on the wheelbarrow was a great bulky sack with uh, a suspicious-looking object inside. At least it looked that way from the outside. And so the guard stopped and said, all right, Petrovich, what have you got there? And he said, oh, it's just sawdust and shavings. Come on, the guard said. I wasn't born yesterday. Tip it out. Let's see what's inside. And so they tipped over the bag, and out came nothing but sawdust and shavings. So the guard said, all right, put it back in the bag. Go home. Well, the same thing happened every night of the week, and the guard became very frustrated. He thought, this, this guy's stealing something from the factory. Finally, his curiosity overcame his frustration, and he said, Petrovich, I've known you all my life. We are actually friends. But I am I am here to stop some thieving in the factory, and I'm pretty sure you're doing this. So if you will just tell me what you are taking out of the factory, uh, we'll put a stop to it here, and I'll let you go. There won't be any punishment. Let's just get this taken care of. And so Petrovich looked at him and said, wheelbarrows. Wheelbarrows, my friend. Every day I've taken a wheelbarrow from the factory. It is easy to get distracted and focus on the wrong things, the shavings and what's in the bag, rather than the wheelbarrow being pushed out of the factory. And it is easy. It's okay to get distracted from time to time. But a lifetime of distraction, a lifetime of focusing on the wrong things becomes a big problem. And today, I want to share a passage of scripture with you where Jesus clears the temple in Jerusalem. He 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 goes into the courtyard and he sees the, the booths there, the markets that are selling animals and the money changers, and he just clears the whole place out. The temple was massive in physical size. It was overwhelming in beauty, and it was a place of power. And in the middle of all that grandeur, the people had forgotten. They'd gotten distracted, and they had forgotten that the temple wasn't for them, but it was for God. And that distraction let irreverence seep into their worship. So Jesus wants to shake up a distracted people so they catch what God is up to and they take very seriously what it means to be God's temple. So this is the big idea for today. God's temple was and is, though it's a little different now, a place of worship and sacrifice. And Jesus wants to take this very seriously, knowing that he replaces the temple and that as Christians, each of us now act as little temples for God. So, we need to know, I'm a temple of the Lord, and so I need to be a place where The markets are cleared out, the money changers are taken care of, and we honor the Lord here. So, let's go ahead and read the text in John chapter 2, verses 13 through 22. 
It begins like this. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle and sheep and doves and others sitting at tables exchanging money. And so he made a whip out of cords and he drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables to those who sold doves. He said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, What sign can you show us to prove that you have the authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. And they replied, It's taken 46 years to build this temple. Are you going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he said, and then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. So, it's a story in which Jesus clears the temple, and then he announces that he is going to replace the temple, and then we're going to learn that the Christian is now God's temple. To really grasp the intensity of this story, there are a few pieces of background information that you and I need to keep in mind. First is the Passover feast. Uh, Passover was a Jewish feast. It is a Jewish feast. And it's a celebration that is uh, in remembrance of the release of Israel from slavery in Egypt. Very specifically, Passover, uh, the first Passover remembers... um, Well, Passover remembers the very first one (laughs) that happened when God's angel passed over and spared the lives of the firstborn in every home whose doorposts were painted with the blood of a lamb. A miracle. And every year, Israel celebrates the Passover. Even today, families will make a pilgrimage to the city of Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. There's a lot of shops that have to convert from stores to hotels, trying to accommodate the sheer number of people. And wow, if you want to think about that, if it swells today, what what was it like in Jesus's day? And it was like this. William Barclay writes that Jerusalem was a large city for those days, uh, had usually about a population of 250,000 people. That's a lot, especially for an ancient city. But at Passover, uh, Jewish families came from all over the world for the celebration, and every Jew within 15 miles was required to attend the Passover feast in Jerusalem. And so, at that time, when they would celebrate Passover in Jesus's day, the city would swell from 250,000 to two and a half million people. And all these pilgrims needed animals for sacrifice in the temple. They needed the correct coins to pay the special temple tax. And they all needed food to celebrate the Passover feast. So an entire industry of Passover sales grew in Jerusalem. We have records of arguments between Caiaphas the high priest and the Sanhedrin over whether or not it was appropriate to allow these markets into the outer court of the temple, the Gentile court. These markets were needed. Everybody knew it, but they didn't know where to put them, and it was a big open courtyard, and where they were located is the real problem. So this crowded scene is what we need to have in our minds as we read the story. The city is packed way beyond capacity. The travelers are tired and hungry, and people came to see the temple. Everybody knows about the temple markets, about the money changers. They depend upon them. Nobody's thinking twice about this, except 
for Jesus. Now, a second piece of information you need to have in your mind as we read this, as we have read this story about Jesus clearing out the temple. The temple is the center of the faith for Israel at this time. The importance of the temple cannot be overstated. It is the very center of faith. It is the center of commerce. It's the center of government power. It's even the center of military power for Israel at this time. Earlier in its history, when the Maccabees rebelled and tried to and, and gained freedom for Israel, they knew that the temple was their first priority. If they could control it, they'd have the people's support. When the Romans came to Israel, they understood the priority of the temple, and so they knew they had to take control of it right away. They even built a fortress, Antonia, on the side of it, so they could have easy access to the temple and control Jerusalem. Later in Israel's history, there would be zealots that would rise up and rebel against Rome, and they knew that the temple was the first priority, and so they took control of it. And then when the Romans came back and besieged uh, Jerusalem, and they put down the, the Zealot Rebellion. They did it in the year 72 AD. They destroyed the temple. They said, this, this building is too important to leave it stand. This particular version of the temple that Jesus is walking through in the gospel account that we read today was built by King Herod. And he understood the power of the temple, and he wanted to win the favor of Israel because Herod was their king, but he wasn't Jewish. He was a foreigner. So he began by doing something that would help win their favor. And so in the year 20 BC, he began renovating the temple. He retrained 18,000 priests into stonemasons and builders and workers to start working on the temple. Yeah, 18,000 full-time workers on the building. By the time we read about Jesus clearing the temple in John chapter 2, the renovation had been continuing for the last 46 years. They did not finish the renovations until the year 64. Yeah, we're looking at about 84 years of renovation. Talk about a project that takes a long time. And if you've been listening and paying attention... They finished renovating that temple in the year 64, and the Romans came and destroyed it in the year 72. The renovations were only completed for six years until the temple was destroyed. There's still stones in place at the base of the temple. It's hard to move stones that weigh 70 tons or more. The temple was astounding, and everyone who saw it was put in awe by it. Upon conquering Jerusalem in 72 AD, there was a Roman general who had never seen the temple before. He was so taken by its enormity and beauty, he tried to stop his troops from looting and destroying it. He knew it was the mission, but he didn't want them to destroy it, and he couldn't stop them. But he was so taken by its beauty, he tried to preserve it. So when Jesus says, tear down this temple, his words are quite scandalous. What he's proposing is very shocking. For Israel, the temple is the beating heart of their faith, their nation. The temple is life. But you know what we find out too about Jesus? Jesus is fierce in his reverence for his father's house. 
I mean, when you think about who, who, how Jesus acts in this, in this story we read today, it is the most fiery presentation of Jesus in the Gospels. I mean, we hear about how he enters the, the temple and he makes a whip of cords to drive out the sheep and the cattle and presumably to motivate the crowd in the markets to vacate the temple courtyard. He drives out the money changers and he flips over their tables. And I want to add, whenever we talk about these tables, he flips over in the temple courts. These are permanent tables. They're probably made of stone. These are not little wicker structures, but this is a supernatural action. Throwing these tables over. And eventually the crowd questions Jesus. What authority do you have to do this? Did you catch that they don't actually deny the improper use of the temple? They just question Jesus' authority. They want a sign. They want to know, hey, what? Can, do you really have the ability to do this? And Jesus responds with a phrase that's shocking and confusing. He says, tear down this temple and he'll raise it back up in three days. The crowd doesn't understand what he's talking about because he's talking about himself. They think he's talking about the actual building of the temple in Jerusalem. And that makes them mad. They love that temple that's been under renovation for 46 years. But Jesus is not talking about a building. He's talking about his body. He's talking about his death and his resurrection. Tear down this building and I'll raise it again in three days. Renovation might take 46 years or 84 is the reality. But resurrection in the hands of God takes three days. And that is the first and most important lesson from this story. Jesus is the temple. He replaces the temple in Jerusalem. And he is the final and perfect sacrifice that covers over your sin. So important. And as we grab onto that important lesson, I want to take another detail and insert it into our understanding of this story. If you go back to John chapter 2 and you look at the other story that happens... Well, why is it even in chapter 2? If we look at the Gospel of John and the clearing of the temple, the telling of that story happens at a very different time in Jesus' ministry than the other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Those three Gospels describe Jesus clearing the temple just before Passover, and that it's one of the very reasons he's finally arrested and crucified. They describe this story at the very end of Jesus' ministry. John describes Jesus clearing the temple at the very beginning of his ministry, three years before he's crucified. Now, some say he only cleared the temple once, and they just are telling it at different times. Others will say, well, this means that Jesus cleared the temple twice, and it was the second time that really pushed the leaders of Israel over the edge, and so they arrest him and try to crucify him. And I, I think we should be happy with understanding that it does happen twice. It's a difficult thing for Israel to give up. But I think we need to ask, why does Jesus clear the temple in John chapter 2? So that's why I want to direct you again to John chapter 2, because there's another story in the same chapter. It's about turning water into wine at the wedding of Cana. And this wedding, and it is a wedding feast, and it's here that Jesus tells us that the messianic age is starting, and there will be a new marriage of God and his people. And then we go to the clearing of the temple, and Jesus is again telling us about the relationship we have with God and how it's something new. Both stories are telling us about the new thing God is doing. 
The stone temple in Jerusalem is not needed anymore. Jesus replaces the temple with himself. And this is critically important. The temple is a place of sacrifice, and the priests there offered sacrifices to cover the people's sins. But their sacrifice was imperfect. It had to be done over and over and over again. And Jesus that he even has to clear the temple of greed shows us how imperfect the system was. But he is the new temple, and he is the new sacrifice, the final sacrifice. And what Jesus does on the cross is perfect and final. No more sacrifices are needed ever for the covering over of your sins. Jesus has done it once and for all. As I was reading this story, I was convicted of another idea. So, we're in the season of Lent, and uh, that season is the 40 days that lead up to Easter. And it's during this time that many Christians reflect on their sin and their need for Jesus. And I'm struck by how I am so easily tempted to set up markets and money-changing tables in God's temple, meaning my own life. Because those markets and the temple that Jesus cleared out in the story we read today, they're very practical. They provided convenience for the people. They were more about what worked for the people of Israel than about reverence for God. And so I was pondering the question, what are the ways that I set up markets and table and money tables in my life? In other words, how am I setting up my faith around my own needs? What works for me instead of honoring God? And then it made me think, ask another question simply, what do I do in my life to honor God? I better make sure I'm doing those things often. I've already mentioned that Jesus puts himself in place of the temple. The old stone building is not needed anymore. Jesus is the final and perfect sacrifice uh, for the sins of this world. But there's something else going on here. Not only does Jesus compare himself to the temple, the Christian is also a temple for the Lord. Have you ever heard the phrase that your body is a temple? (laughs) It's an important phrase. I remember as a kid reading the Garfield comic strip, you know, Garfield, the orange tabby cat with orange with stripes, and um, he loved to sleep, he loved to eat lasagna and watch TV, and in the comic strip, Garfield had a running gag about being overweight, and I remember one particular comic strip that reads like this, his owner is looking at him and says, Garfield, you really should take better care of yourself, and Garfield as a cat has just got a thought bubble over his head, he says, I do, this body is a temple, and then he kind of looks down at his stomach, which is hanging over his waist, and he says, well, I'm a temple with a two-car garage. I think we all know that we could take better care of our temples. Our body is a temple, truly is. But in the Bible, we read in 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17, these words, Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred and you together are that temple. I've always read that passage, hearing that I am now a temple for the Lord. I also have read that and heard that I'm protected from those who might destroy the temple, but I think perhaps it's a warning to me and a warning to all Christians to keep from setting up markets and money-changing tables in our temple. That is to say, I need to dedicate myself to the Lord, to honoring the Lord, to revering Him. Everything in my life needs to be about honoring the Lord. 
And so I'd remind you, God's temple is for a holy purpose. So much so that the Jesus we see in this passage of scripture, he's the angriest and most animated of any story in the gospels. Jesus is passionate about proper reverence in the father's house. And this goes a couple ways. He says, stop turning the temple into a marketplace. It's not for your pleasure, not for your benefit, not for your convenience. And then also in the other accounts of the gospels, we hear Jesus say, my father's house is to be a house of prayer, meaning it has a purpose. It's a place of worship. It's a place of prayer. It's a place of appropriate sacrifice and instruction. And it's the place where God's presence resides. And you, if you are a Christian, you are God's temple. Don't turn yourself into a marketplace for your own convenience, for your own benefit, for your own pleasure. You are holy. An appropriate reverence for God should be used in your life. And the constant battle we face is to turn our lives for our own benefit instead of to be a house of prayer and reverence to God. So, if we take a moment and look at that building in Jerusalem, we get some clues as to the sorts of behavior that will lead to proper reverence. And the first one is it's to be a house of prayer. I already mentioned that in the other gospel accounts, Jesus tells the disciples and tells the crowd, my father's house is to be a house of prayer. Mark tells us that the temple is to be a house of prayer for all nations. You can read it. It's in Matthew 21, 13 and Luke 19, 46 and, and Mark 11, 17 is where you find those verses. And you and I need to be a people who practice regular prayer out of reverence for God. Not just prayer so that we can ask for what we need. We should be asking the Lord for what we need. But even more so, our prayer should be out of reverence for the Lord. Secondly, the temple is a place of worship. That's easy to remember that we worship when we go to church services and we're in a church building. But we each are God's temple. If we are a Christian, we, the people who are the church, <laughs> are the temple. And I think we need... To remember that the temple is a place of celebration, of joyful worship. The people of Israel partied in the temple. They were overjoyed by what God had done for them. And so, we need to be overjoyed in our worship of the Lord. Thirdly, the temple was a place of sacrifice. Now, Jesus is the final sacrifice for our sins. No other sacrifice is needed for our sins. But we are called to give ourselves as sacrifices. Romans 12.1 says this, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. And Hebrews 13, verses 15 and 16 say, say this, Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess His name. And do not forget to do good and to share with others for such sacrifices, with such sacrifices, God is pleased. So we are called to offer a sacrifice of testimony, professing God's name. And we're called to offer a sacrifice of serving others. A fourth purpose of the temple is for instruction. The temple is where the word of God was kept and is also it's where many of the teachings about the Bible were kept and Today, we are God's temple, so I think that means we need to get into God's Word. I think very specifically, in the times we live in, we need to understand orthodoxy, the core principles of the Christian faith. That's a great place to start. Those core beliefs of Christianity, 
will serve as a roadmap through all the tough questions of life. Philip Brooks writes this, It does not take great men to do great things. It takes consecrated men. And as Jesus is clearing out the temple of markets and money changers, he's sending you and me a message. God is asking you and me to be a people dedicated to him. Recognize today that you are a temple for the Lord and you must live like it. Let's pray. Lord, it is easy to build our lives around our wants and our desires and even around our fears. When we do this, we run the risk of building markets and money changers to suit our needs instead of living as a house dedicated to knowing and honoring you. Help us each day to honor you more and more. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Go with Jesus.